Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Last week, during our interview with Dave Ehrenberg, Palm Beach County State Attorney, we were introduced to the corrupt practices that are known as the Florida Shuffle, where crooked treatment centers partner with body brokers and operators of so-called sober homes to find patients with good health insurance. Brokers and sober home owners offer those trying to get clean free rent, grocery store gifts, cigarettes, and cell phones in exchange for going to specific treatment centers which pay kickbacks for every client. Joining me today is a special guest whose family has firsthand experience with the Florida Shuffle. It's my pleasure to welcome the beloved television play-by-play broadcaster of the Detroit Red Wings, Ken Daniels, to share his son, Jamie's story. So, Ken, welcome. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Okay. Before we get into why we're here, I just want to ask you a question about a special moment in your career. On June 4th, 2008, you filled in for the regular broadcaster, Ken Cal, in Game 6 of the Stanley Cup Finals, where the Red Wings were pitted against the Pittsburgh Penguins. And Cal, that day, was suffering from laryngitis. So you sat in the booth... Uh, along with him, and he was unable to call the game. So the Red Wings had a 3-2 to two lead in the series, and with 45 seconds to go in the game, you took off your headset. And can you share with us what happened next? Yeah, they, just to back up, they called me earlier that day, and I was to work here because when you're the TV broadcaster, then after the second round of the playoffs, you're done and national broadcast take over, but radio continues, so Ken was continuing on radio. That morning, I got the call that Ken had lost his voice. Um, I call Ken Schleprock. Uh, in my book, If These Walls Could Talk, I talk lots about Ken Cal because I call him Schleprock because anything bad that will happen seems to happen to him when it comes to this. So he lost his voice before, and unfortunately on game six that day, he lost his voice again. So we are, uh, I'm here in Detroit, and I get the call to go down to Pittsburgh. So yes, I'm calling the game, and Ken, because he's the regular broadcaster, play-by-play guy, he's handing me cards to read, commercial reads, et cetera, so he's there with me. So yes, 45 seconds left, uh, Team Pittsburgh had called a timeout, and I take my headset off, and I turn to Ken Cow, and I said, Ken, you're calling the last 15 seconds of this game. And he said, no, I'm not. I said, yes, you are. He's at the sort of, you know, he's 10 feet away from me. He says, I can't talk. I said, you'll be fine. You can talk. Suck it up. Let's go. So they drop the puck. Game goes. And with about 15 seconds left, although I wish I'd give it to him maybe five seconds earlier, I said, to bring us home for the Stanley Cup, here's Ken Cal. Well, the play continues. It goes into the Detroit zone. And Marion Hosa, who is then with Pittsburgh before Detroit, gets it right at the side of the crease and nearly scores. It was that close. I'm thinking the Red Wings are going to win this. It'll be nice and smooth for Ken. Sure enough, his voice gets higher and the Red Wings win the Stanley Cup. So it it was really, it was Ken's place to call 
the championship. It wasn't mine. I was filling in, and I just thought that was the right thing to do. And in the end, Ken did a great job, even though he thought he couldn't speak. He did. But I did say to him after, I said, oh, my goodness, Schlepprock, if they had scored to tie the game, you would have been the biggest jinx in the history of sports. But thankfully, they didn't. And the Red Wings went on to win the Cup. So it was pretty cool, and I was glad I could do that for Ken. And uh, I guess I would have wanted someone to do that for me, and I could do that for him. What a terrific moment. And I, I tell you what, I, I think that that speaks to character and it kind of speaks to introducing who you are as a person. Well, thank you. I mean, do unto others, right? So yeah. uh, uh, that, that's really all that was. And it was, it was, his, it was his domain, not mine. Yeah. So let's move along and uh, talk about what we're here to talk about. And that's, that's really your son. He was the subject of a very powerful E60 episode. And, and you did a wonderful job of telling the story of the Florida Shuffle. So let's start off. Tell us a little bit about your son who got caught up in this terrible scheme. Jamie could uh, be mischievous. He was funny. He was loyal. I loved his laugh. Um, he, loved, he loved music. He loved all sports. He loved his friends. And, you know, if there were friends in a group and someone was on the outside, Jamie would reach out and bring them into the group. Even though I think when Jamie was younger, he probably felt sometimes out of place, like maybe he wouldn't have the personality to be involved, but I think he undercut, and anyone who knew him knew that wasn't the case, but I think himself he probably thought that, which is why in part later in life he probably felt better on uh, opioids, that he could do things that maybe he couldn't have done before. He had told me that once, and I said to him at the time, I said, you're selling yourself way short, man. That, that's not you at all, but whatever. He was just that type of kid, as loyal as can be, and to his sister. Um, they were just best friends. My daughter is three years younger than Jamie and, and lost her best friend when he went. He was uh, just a, a great kid. Uh, he always called himself probably more street smart than book smart, but did okay, graduated from Michigan State with a, a 3.5, always thought he wanted to become an attorney. Why, I'm not so sure. But he did. He wanted to become a, a player agent in some sports, was uh, involved in his time at Michigan State. He was the manager for the school hockey team, so did their video and broke down tape. He was close with a lot of guys on the basketball team. And, uh, you know, he was just very outgoing. Now, as he said later, he was more outgoing in college because he was on opioids. And it made him that much more gregarious. And I thought, again, I don't think that's the case at all. But, but that's really who Jamie was, just, just a great kid with tons of friends. And I have to say, on, on the day of Jamie's funeral here, on December the 11th, and, and when we brought him back, his, his body came back from Florida. Uh, it was We had to do it on a Sunday because Michigan State uh, exams were on that Monday of that December before the school break. So we had to do it on a Sunday. And it was the worst snowstorm of that winter. And I have to tell you that the where, where Jamie's uh, funeral was held, that place holds a thousand people. There were more than a thousand people there, and it was out the door on the worst snowstorm you can imagine. And mostly, it was packed with kids who came in from Michigan State. So that's the that's the impact that my son had. And it, you know, you could say, well, yes, and I have some sort of celebrity here because of what I do in our family. Well, our family moved here in 1997 when Jamie was four years old. A lot of what was there, it had. Yes, sure, there were some from the sports world who were there for me, but I would say 80% of the people were there for Jamie, and uh, that's just the type of kid he was. That's quite a tribute to your son and your entire family. Thank you. 
So as your son was growing up, were there any red flags that you, in looking back, you realize were really signs that there would have been problems down the road with addiction? Uh, no, not not with addiction. Sometimes, yeah, I can't even say Jamie would... I, maybe it was moving here or fitting in in the beginning, so maybe you think that's the problem because, you know, you come in at four and then you got other clicks and we didn't have family here because you moved from Toronto. You come to Michigan, so you don't have the aunts and the uncles and the cousins here to hang out at holidays, and, and you go to friends' houses where it's it's just us and it's not quite the same. So there is that. I know Jamie had mentioned that to me a few times, and he loved going back to Toronto to see his family there. So is that a sign? I don't know where, you know, maybe he seemed depressed about that, but nothing long-term or anything like that. No, not that we can notice, because, again, as he went along, he had so many friends, and even switching schools, he fit in just fine. It's, it's not like he was best buddies with everybody in the school, middle school, but had his group of friends just like any other kid. He played hockey and loved it. He was a goalie for a hockey team. I, I know that uh, when he was, I don't know, I'm trying to think now, maybe 13 or 14 years old and he was playing um, travel hockey. So it was busy. You'd play games and you'd have practices at night. And one night out, it was a Friday night, and I guess that's when, you know, those kids early teens and you start to meet girls and there's parties at friends' houses and he's out there playing hockey. And it was a November night and I was coming back from a hockey practice and Jamie said to me, I don't know if I want to play anymore. And it wow. sort of surprised me a little. And I said, why? And he said, well, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do this on Friday nights and Saturday games. And I said, well, if you don't have a passion for it, then don't do it. And he said, well, how's it going to look if Ken Daniels' kid isn't playing hockey? And I said, from where Ken Daniels sitting in the driver's seat right now, you do whatever you want. It's up to Jamie Daniels. It's your life. But I said, you did commit to play this season. You'll finish this season because you made a commitment. But if you don't want to play anymore, don't play anymore. And he didn't. He would play pickup with friends sometimes, but then he got into roller hockey, which was with a different group of friends at different timing, and he loved it. So, you know, we always had groups of friends that could fit in. So I don't think there were really any signs for us. No red flags. The sign that, that, mm-hmm. that we didn't like, and I'll tell you this, Greg, was in, mm-hmm. in, in high school, and he probably self-diagnosed and I was maybe more on side that he did. His mother was certainly on side that he did not have ADHD. Mm-hmm. He went and saw a, uh, a psychiatrist here or a psychologist, whatever it was that prescribes the, the Adderall, which I believe can be a gateway to opioids. Mm-hmm. And Jamie told us later he lied on that test, he faked the test to get Adderall so he'd have longer time on exams and in college. Um, to uh, because he was on Adderall, and they sign off on sheets if you have a longer time to complete tests. Now, Jamie would use the Adderall. I didn't see any side effects necessarily there, but I'm sure that after the fact, when Jamie had Adderall, he was in college and was then introduced by a kid in his frat in his freshman year because he moved into a frat his freshman year at Michigan State because the kid told me after Jamie passed, he was the one who introduced him to opioids. Uh, I'm sure that Jamie continued to use the Adderall, and we knew nothing about the opioids. I'm sure at some point was probably selling Adderall and getting opioids. So Adderall for me is a big red flag. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when he 
things didn't spiral uh, out of control until he made it to college, I believe. In college, things started to get a little rough. He joined a fraternity and the partying began to get out of hand. Is that right? Yeah, not, well, Jamie could, you know, he was, he went through, I, I, you know, I think the hazing at college is a problem, and Jamie was one of those who was hazed and had to pledge the frat and the crap that he had to go through from eating live goldfish and sitting underwater dripping on him for, for a week on end and living in the basement and just in a pair of shorts and everything else they do there, which I mm. think is disgusting. But, yeah. you know, I remember when Jamie completed that, he said to me, Dad, if I can get through this, I can get through anything. So Jamie went through the, the hazing, and he wanted to be part of that fraternity, which two years after he left, or a year after he left, that frat was closed down. That house was closed down at Michigan State for stuff beyond Jamie. And I'm not saying that Jamie wasn't a ringleader after his time, because he was uh, one of the top guys in that frat, continued to live there and put kids through the, the pledging just like he went through. Yeah. Why wouldn't he? He thought, if I went through it, well, it must be okay for the next guy. Mm-hmm. And so on it went. And that's where, you know, Michigan State now... Thank goodness, and, and I'm hoping that maybe we can do something uh, as, as well at, at the University of Michigan here. But Michigan State now, starting in the fall, I believe, has a collegiate recovery community where students have a place to live that is safe and for those who have gone through um, sobriety and have come out the other side who want to continue on in college but know they have a, a safe place to live and you can apply to live in a sober home on campus. That's I think awesome. That's so huge. I think yep. every college in America needs this. And yeah. I just found out about this a few days ago, Greg, and we're going to look into this. And I think that's a great thing. Now, you could say, you know, how, how high did we know Jamie was getting at college? We didn't. But if kids are there and they say they have a problem, which Jamie finally did after he graduated and was at a summer camp and was given something for an arm injury that he had because he was a staff member and he called me from camp and he said, Dad, I need to get sober. I think he said, I need, no, his words were, I need to get to rehab. You've got to get me out of here. And he did. And that was step one to admit it. Yep. So he did that on his own. Now, it didn't end, obviously, the way we all wanted it to. But I give him a ton of credit. And I said to him at the time on the phone, I said, I have never been more proud of you than I am today. And I said that to him once during our time together and during his time in Florida. So really, yes, a lot of it came from college, the opioids at college. I think the abuse of Adderall at college and going on to opioids at college um, and is marijuana a gateway drug? We can argue that for days on end. Is Adderall a gateway drug? We can argue that for days on end. But it's just too prevalent and it's got to stop and the parents aren't there to see it and it's the peer pressure. We have to get to kids, Greg, as you know, in seventh, eighth, ninth grade and show them the perils that opioid addiction shows no socioeconomic boundaries. Yep. It can happen to anybody, the person next door, and we're seeing it because if it's not right next door to you, <laughs> it's probably two doors down from you or three doors down. Don't kid yourself. And the first thing, the first step in addressing it is to talk about it openly. I think so many times this stuff, it's, it's hushed. It's particularly in well-to-do communities. You live in a very nice community, a fluent community. And, and so getting people to open up and talk is the big challenge. But once you do, once you do, it's amazing how people come out of the woodwork. Have you noticed that? Yeah, for sure. Have I noticed it? For sure. And I, I'm guilty of that. We did. And that's why we go out now. We talk about the shame and the stigma for Kalu's recovery. And it does. And we were one of those. My family, 
if you knew, and uh, we're very close. My, my, I have two older brothers and an older sister, and I'm seven years younger than my next oldest brother, so there's quite an age gap there. Mm-hmm. And I live in Detroit. One brother lives in Calgary. My other brother and sister live in Toronto. All of us now, and uh, I'm 59 years old, so they're older. All, and our parents have since passed. My dad lived in 96, my mom 85. And they were so proud of all their children and us of them, and they were married for 63 years. None of us have ever had a disagreement that left us not speaking for maybe more than a day. Sure, you don't necessarily agree on something. None of us have ever had any fight within the family. We all get along. And yet, when Jamie was going through what he went through and went to Florida, my family knew none of it because we were ashamed. And I didn't want them judging my son, who we hope would come out on the other side of it okay and be one of those success stories and not a failure like so many have gone through. And we told them no one because I didn't want them to judge where maybe they could have helped. I'm not so sure. But, you know, Jamie would even call them from Florida to say hi. And he told them he was down there working. They knew he was in Florida and he was working for a law firm. So he wasn't lying. He just didn't tell them why he was there. Um, wow. Huh. They, were, they, they were upset after the fact that I didn't share with them. And I, and I get it. Sure. I understand why they're upset. But as families, we have to share. We can't be ashamed. We did it to honor Jamie's wishes. And after a while, Greg, I tell you, when Jamie was down there in Florida, and he said, I'm through not telling people anymore, Dad. I'm over that now. And I said, okay. And he started to tell people. Unfortunately, you know, some of his friends knew here, but my family didn't. But, again, I wished we had told everybody earlier, we have to talk about it. So you got him into treatment in the summer of 2015. And that only lasted just a very short period of time, just weeks before he relapsed. So you made the decision to send him to Florida. And I take it that that was not realizing, and we talked about this before this podcast, not realizing that that's really a crossroad that, you know, parents are faced when they think about sending their, their children remotely. Now, for, for rehab, that is. So, um, at that time, how did you think about that? How did you think about sending him off to rehab? You, you probably thought of, about it as send him off like you do in the you see all the time in the media. Send him off for a couple of months and bring him back and he's shiny and bright and ready to roll. And that's a blip on the radar screen. That's it. That's all. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Now, he was here in Michigan. And when he went to uh, out in a hospital in Brighton, which is a community here, he wound up knowing people there, uh, parents of. Some kids he knew and an old girlfriend. And it was like he was embarrassed to be there and probably should have stayed there three or four weeks. Uh, he stayed there only 11 days, came home, and he was sober, and this was in 2015. Uh, went through the painful detox, and that's why kids continue to get high, because they're scared of going through the detox, which from what you know from your son, and mine, it's the thickest feeling in the world, right? Yep. And uh, so... They're scared of going through that, but he did, and I'll give him credit for that. And then when he came home here, it was like having my son back. The conversations we had, I said, oh, my God, I'm so happy you're home. He said, that's the nicest thing you've ever said. And I said, well, I've got my son back. And that lasted for a little bit. And then you go on through the year, and, and then he starts using again. But couldn't I asked him many times, are you high, whatever, but I thought, no. And we were, we were doing drug tests here at the home. And, and let me tell you, the mistrust, and this is where, and I'll, I'll get back to sending them off to Florida in your question, but what do you do when they come home? And from what I've heard from those in the recovery industry, or those who've gone through this, and Jamie was 23 at the time, to come back and live at home where the parents think, 
oh good, we got him back here at home. It's probably the worst thing you can do because there's mistrust there. Or why are you sleeping so late? Boy, you look tired. Where were you? What time were you home? What are you doing? Why are you sleeping all day? There's too many questions. They need to be in a peer group that hopefully is sober and friends looking out for them and in a good group and in a safe place and with a job and acclimating back into society. That is what we were told would happen in Florida. We sent him off to Beachway Therapy in Florida for the 30-day intensive treatment program. And it was a wonderful place. And they were great. And speaking with the therapist, and Jamie loved it. And I could tell after the first week when we did not talk to him. And for any parent, as you know, of an addict, when they are in a safe place recovering, those are the only nights that you are able to sleep peacefully. That's right. I've never slept better than that week, right? Yep. I knew that Jamie was safe and okay. And the nurses would call us. And it was a good place. And the therapist there put him into another place, Sober Living, uh, near Delray. And that was also a great place. Why? Because they were on him like hawks. And when you went out of that intensive, then you have to go to the outpatient treatment, right? And you're required to find a job, acclimate back into society. And it's not cheap. This place was 245 a week, but it covered all the drug testing, unlike what happens with the insurance fraud going on now in Florida and many other states. So we never got any bill from Sober Living, and I'd be in contact with them. And you put money into Jamie's account where they would limit to maybe $25 a day for food. And there's some groceries during the week. If you put into his account $60 for groceries, they had to go out, buy the groceries, come back with the groceries, with a receipt on exactly what they spent. So you had to account for everything. And to Jamie, after a while, or six months of this, felt like a prison for him. But it was $2.45 a week. He enjoyed his early time there. He, once he found a job, paid for three of the weeks. I paid for one. And then he was patient brokered and decided to move out. But back to your point of question. You're right. We went, sent him to Florida. I thought, okay, and I'm learning as I go. When Jamie went out of the 30-day intensive treatment program, and then they find him a place to live, which is another sober living home, which was wonderful. The thinking is, yes, he's going to do this, find a job, and, and, and yes, at some point. But it never really dawned on you, when does he come home? I'm thinking, okay, maybe a month here, and then six months here, and then he's sober and ready to come home. But it's lifelong. It, yeah. it's, it's years on end. And, and as you talk about your, your frontal cortex, it's not developed yet to even know or, or make right decisions. And yet in that time, as a parent, you're just thinking, take him, make him better. Well, it's a, it's a process that only they can make themselves better over a period of time, right? Exactly. It work like that. So yep. it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a tough call where you think it's going to happen, but it's not. It's an everyday thing. And when he found that place to live, and I, I, you know, other parents are thinking of sending their kids somewhere, all the therapist told me out of Beachway was, and the place was expensive, and Jamie was required to find a job. He knew all that. No matter what that job would be, I think working as a clerk in a law firm may have been too much for him. I think it was probably too stressful. I always told him, why don't you go work at Costco? Why don't you pack stuff on the shelves? It didn't matter what you did. And he'd laugh at me for that. i go, no, that's what you should be doing. You don't need a stressful job. You well, yeah. You don't have to worry about just getting yourself clean, right? Yeah, they so tell him to start off easy. Yeah. They tell him to start off easy. And also, they don't want him to get too much money early on also. So they want right. them to, to work a lesser job such as that, maybe be underemployed. And that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, in this context, it's a good thing. Yes, perhaps it is, but it depends where you are. And that this is to the point that I should have made five minutes ago, but I didn't. Once he gets out of Beachway and goes to live somewhere, all the therapist told me when he called me was he said it's $245 a week. 
And I'm thinking, plus food, etc. So holy cow, over the course of a month, you're talking maybe twelve or $1,300 a month. It's not cheap. He needs a job to help pay that rent unless your parents have the wherewithal to do that. But they're also supposed to be responsible for himself. And when I said to the therapist, 245 a week, it's expensive. All he said to me was, in Florida, you get what you pay for. That didn't send up a red flag to me. It did after the fact. When yeah. I found out about patient brokering and all the, everybody, Tom, Dick, and Harry, who's opening up a sober living home to, to that is, uh, the criminals exploiting the system. I didn't know that at the time. So, to your point, yes, you should not be having, you know, some type of a menial job, but boy, how do you live? How do you know mm-hmm. what is the right place unless you're doing your due diligence all the time and calling down there? We didn't know any of that at the time because we knew nothing about the Florida shuffle. Yeah. So the first two uh, places that he went, so he went for treatment, inpatient treatment to Beachway, and then after that he transitioned to IOP, intensive outpatient, and at that time he was living at the Sober Living uh, Apartments in Delray, and I assume that Beachway was connected somehow, maybe informally with Sober Living or formally, I don't know. Yeah, well, they certainly knew of them and knew that they were a reputable place, and they certainly are. Sober living is a good place. And from there, in the early part of the first month, he would go back to meetings, and they would have a bus to take or transportation to take them to Beachway to go for meetings, how many nights a week they had meetings there. And then after a while, he transitioned from there in sober living, and there were other places to go to the the 12-step programs and and, and go to the meetings from there, yes. So I don't know if they're directly affiliated, but certainly knew of one another. So, so far, you feel as though, even looking back on it, that those were safe environments for him. 100%, yeah. Yeah. But then in this next phase that he went to that was perhaps a monetary thing, who knows why, Talk, speak to that, this sober home that he decided to go to in November of 2015. 2015 or 2016? 2016. 2016, I'm sorry. Well, he certainly, you know, when he, when he told me he wanted to leave, and when I spoke to Chris at Sober Living, he didn't want him to leave. But, you know, Jamie, he had thought, I guess there was a time when somebody there had a sleeping pill or something, and Jamie thought, boy, oh, boy, and now I, I'm going to get caught. I, I got this pill, and he had a sleeping pill. And, you know, you, you there is a penance to, play, to pay, like you have to be in earlier at 9 o'clock at night. They, they do watch you there, which I think is a great thing. And Jamie was going to meetings, and that's where he met up with this kid, Kate Potter, who was in the E60 piece, who basically told him he had a home that was $50 a month. Now, I knew nothing about Kate, although Jamie did tell me that, uh, he had a friend and told me he was leaving and going to live at this other place. And I said, I don't want you leaving. He goes, Dad, it's 50 bucks a month. It's all covered by insurance. Now, he sent me the forms that were that he signed that were covered by insurance, and this rent was $50 a month. Now, Cade, in the piece that was on ESPN E60, said that he had patient broker kids but didn't patient broker Jamie. Patient broker meaning you go to meetings, you are paid by that, so-called sober living home, which is anything but sober, where anyone can open up, uh, rent out a place and call it a sober living home to, to build the industry. Yeah, you're uh, paid. Let me let me jump in. You're paid yeah. a, a referral fee for referring right. a body to another provider. In this case, another That's jumping right. sober homes. That's right. Yeah. And, and where Jamie met Kate 
It, it could have been at a meeting, et cetera. Now, Kate said he didn't patient poker, Jamie. Maybe that's semantics, and Jamie said, yeah, I'm looking to get out. The kids said, well, i got a place for you to live. So did he go see Jamie with a suitcase and bring it back? No, probably not. But I would bet you dollars to donuts that when Kate walked in with Jamie to that home that wasn't sober, said, hey, I've got a new guy to live here. I'm sure that Kate probably got paid by the owner of that home another body, and then that body being Jamie, who will, they will then send to a specific doctor, and the doctor will order more lab tests and peeing in a cup, way more than he needs. That gets sent to the lab from that doctor. The lab then fills the insurance company and then pays off the lab, pays off the doctor, back to the home, and there you go. That's the broken recovery industry in Florida and many other states now. That's how it works. So I believe Jamie was taken by a there, although when Jamie called me, he said, Dad, I've got met this kid, Kate, and it's a terrible story, and his family history, and his dad who passed in, in a terrible way, and I'm taking him now, I'm getting him some clothes, and we're going into Target, and I said, whoa, 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 I've got one kid to worry about. I don't need to support two now. You just worry about yourself, and four or five days later, Jamie was dead in that home. So, that's his story where we believe that he got the pill that he took, which was Jamie didn't shoot up, but he was into opioids and pills, and it was a pill with heroin laced with fentanyl. And as we saw in the E60 piece, which his roommate Kate admitted to, he was told to wait and not call the police for an hour while Emmanuel, the uh, manager of that home or owner through somebody else, whatever he was, uh, waited to clean up the place and clear it out of drugs before the police came. So there were so many things that conspired to bring about your, the death of your son. And, and it's just so, so tragic. Um, and, and much of it, though, you found out about after the fact. Um, so after the fact, you, well, it wasn't until much later, I guess, a couple of weeks later, that you found out about the Florida shuffle. You didn't know anything about this while this was going on, right? No, we knew nothing until a, a couple of nights and we're all as a family together and uh, I'm at Jamie's mother's home and we have friends and family were over, of course, mourning Jamie's loss when my phone starts to go off and I'm getting texts from Kate Potter who told me who it was and I said who's this and told me he was there when, when Jamie passed, etc. and then said I've got enough places, I think it was an E60 piece, I think the text, because I sent them the text and I saved them, was I've got enough on this place to put them under a prison for years. Yeah. So that implied to me it was an unseemly place, and this is really the first sort of inkling I get. And then Cade, who said he had some of Jamie's belongings, some jewelry of Jamie's, uh, which we never got back, a laptop, his beat headphones, other things like that, he was asking to get them back. He was basically asking for money, if I could wire him money, because he said, I'm just a poor white kid, who's going to be out on the street, I've got no place to live, it's raining outside, I need money if you want his belongings back, of which later he told the 60 folks that Emmanuel cleaned up the house and he took Jamie's belongings. So who do you believe? Addicts, as you know, addicts lie. Yeah. And not that my son didn't too, he did. Addicts lie, and they're very good manipulators, they'll do anything they can. So that was really the first I heard of what was the Florida Shuffle, and to a very good police detective down there who came on the scene after Jamie had left, told us that there were no drugs found at the scene. They couldn't find any of Jamie's prescription pill bottles that he had, so they were obviously taken. He only got them four days earlier, and we saw the bottle. There were 30 pills in it. 
of uh, the generic form of Xanax. So where did those all disappear? They obviously took everything there, and that was his prescription. So there was nothing at the scene that said there was anything drug-related. And then, only through speaking to the detectives, who then got us in touch with the FBI, did we learn of what is the Fort Shuffle. That's the first we'd heard of it. It was maybe a couple weeks after Jamie had passed. So having this experience, what words of caution would you have for other families so that they don't fall victim of the Florida shuffle? Well, A, to what your point is earlier, what do you do when the kids are ready to come home? And it's a, it's a lifelong thing, recovery. And, and as you say, send your kids away. You're thinking, I'll do anything because you're so desperate. Well, as a parent, that's what we want to do, right? You can't save them. They've got, they've got to want to get clean. And it's a long life process for them to stay clean. They need direction every day. They need sponsors. They need a peer group that is safe. And coming back to live with you at home is not the answer. So what is the long-term plan? That's one. You're going to send your kid away. Make sure doctors here where you are in your local community or where you're going, this is a safe place. Go down, check it out, be sure. And where they're going to live after, there are places you can call. There are, and I wish I had them handy for me right now. Maybe you can after the fact. There are places in Florida or whatever state that you go to through the government now have 800 numbers that you can check on on where they're living. Are these homes reputable? That's what you need every step of the way. So when you come out of your 30-day intensive and you have to go live somewhere, you better make sure where they're living and it's a reputable place and where to live. All I can say is sober living, uh, the place near Delray and Point Beach, I'm not sure the exact address where Jamie was is a good place, but there are too many others that are not, and not just in Florida. Florida Shuffle now, because of how they're clamping down in Florida, now it's moving into other states, and we hear in Orange County in California is really bad. Places in Boston, same thing. They're opening up everywhere where I don't know whether it's under the uh, Affordable Care Act that you can't discriminate what a sober home is and the requirements for testing, etc. There are 800 numbers, and if you can find them, Greg, and as I say, I wish I had them right now, that... We'll find them and publish it. Yeah, we'll find them and publish it. You've got to make phone calls, and you've got to do your due diligence. We were very trusting, and, um, and and unfortunately, probably too trusting, just the system was okay. But now that we're making everybody aware of it, that it's not okay, and it's loitered with, with criminal and corruption, check it out. Yeah, that, That's our warning. That's our warning. And uh, I think we're saving lots of lives because of it. Well, no doubt about it. Um, your family's story through e- that E60 episode is also undoubtedly going to educate uh, a lot of families on all of the corruption that exists in the industry, mainly in Florida, but as you say, now outside of that. And it's going to save a lot of lives in the process. And I, I, yes, and if people want more uh, of the story about it or to read about it, jamiedanielsfoundation.org is Jamie's um, foundation page and you can go there and check it out and the athletic which started all this um, it's a subscription sports paid service but craig customs wrote a marvelous piece on jamie we were just talking about my book if these walls could talk detroit red wings and then at the end he asked me about jamie and i started talking he said my goodness ken this is a story all on its own and it was really the first time i had ever told the story it was november of 17 and then after he published the story and they made it free from a subscription base on The Athletic because it was so important to be told, that's when Mike Farrell and John Barr at ESPN picked up on the story and they went from there. And now then Washington picks up and his mother went to D.C. to speak. I was there to D.C. to speak. 
And you can see all those on my public page, on my Facebook page, too. The videos are out there about the opioid epidemic and what Washington is doing, the, the Energy and House Committee in Washington and what they're doing. So jamiedanielsfoundation.org or on my Facebook page, Ken Daniels. You'll see it. It's got the picture of my book on there, and that's my page. And you can see the videos on there and our stories that can be told. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time today, Ken. I really appreciate it. What final comments would you care to share with our listeners as we sign off? Uh, just, you know, do your due diligence. Be aware of your kids and who they're hanging with, what they're doing. Addicts lie. They manipulate. See the signs. As I just mentioned, leave nothing in your medicine cabinet. And just be aware, if you don't need any type of opioid, please don't take it. Just because a doctor gives it to you doesn't mean you have to take it. We've been visiting today with beloved television play-by-play broadcaster of the Detroit Red Wings, Ken Daniels. Ken has shared the tragic and the moving story of his son, Jamie's struggles with opioid dependence, his struggles with recovery, and... He shared the story of the Florida shuffle in the hopes that other families will not meet that same fate. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.